Indy Darling and his sisters Josephine and Monique were in their room listening to their parents tell them stories about space travel before bed. They loved the stories of far-off stars and giant galaxies, but they knew, given their scientific upbringing, that they would never be able to get to them, for the distances involved were too great. Nevertheless, the stories were great fun, until one day... Hence, so the supernova was lensed around the galaxy in four paths, so the astronomers knew how far away it was. Oh, thank you, Mother. What a wonderful story. Yes, it was. Thank you. But how did they work out the redshift? That's a story for another time. Good night, children. Sleep well. Good, Good night. night. Then suddenly at the window, there came a small knocking sound. Then it opened to admit a strange figure. Who are you? And what are you doing here? I'm Peter Pan, and I wonder if you can help me. Oh, wow. Look, Indy. He's flying through the window. But how? That kind of levitation requires significant upthrust unless he's massless. I've come to find my dark matter. I've been looking for it for ages and my friend told me it might be here. Your friend? Yes, my friend, Tinker Meg. Ooh, a fairy princess. Just a fairy, thank you. Gosh, how exciting. But how can you find dark matter here? It's near the centre of the galaxy. Oh, well, perhaps you could come with us and help. Come with you? Where? To Forever and Everland, of course. Oh, wow. Can we? But where is it? I've never heard of it. See that star there? Turn left and straight on till morning. To infinity and beyond. But how... And so the children went with Peter and Tinker Meg, not realising that Captain Mark of the Pulsar Group was lying in wait for Peter in the tea room of Forever and Everland. <laughs> Peter has been spending far too much time searching for dark matter. We need to bring him into... The Pulsar Group. Madam Smee! Yes, Captain? Bring the poisoned coffee here. I have a feeling that Peter will be back very soon. I have it here, Captain. Good, good. Soon we will have him observing pulsars instead. Just then, Peter and his guests arrived. And this is the tea room, and... Oh, no, it's Captain Mark. Miller. Fear not, young Peter. I don't want to hurt you. Here, I've made you this coffee. Oh, that's very kind of you. No, wait. I don't think he's telling the truth. Very well, then. Adam's me. Yes, Captain? Seize those children. Right away, Captain. Help us! Now, Peter, drink up. Nothing like coffee in the morning. I've got to do something. I'll save you, Peter. Tinker Meg, no! Oh no, I don't feel very well at all. I feel like observing pulsars. The world is spinning. I can't. Help me, please. You fiend, Captain Mark. There's only one way to save her. Everyone clap your hands and say, I believe in princesses. I believe in princesses. How long do I have to put up with that princess thing? I'm not going to be restored to life with that. Oh yes, you are. Oh no, I'm not. Oh yes, you are. Oh, no, I'm... Oh, what's the use? Tinker Meg! Tinker Meg! Will the children escape? Will Captain Mark get his comeuppance? Will Megan ever get past the whole princess thing? Find out after this. The Jodcast. All you want for Christmas is us. With Indy Leclerc, Ian MacDonald, Josie Peters, Mark Perver and Hannah Stacey. The Jodcast, December 2014, Extra Edition.
and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Josie and today I'm with Indy and Hannah. In the show this time, Indy talks to Professor Sabir Sakar about galactic foregrounds and bicep 2, and Dr Ian MacDonald answers your astronomical questions. But before all of that, Mark interviews Dr Matthias Vidal about magnetic radio loops in the Milky Way in this month's Jodbite. I'm interviewing Dr. Matthias Vidal, who's a postdoctoral researcher here at the Georgia Bank Centre for Astrophysics. Welcome again to the Jodcast. Thank you. You were interviewed first as a PhD student, and you were studying the cosmic microwave background, or maybe things around that. And now you've got a new paper that's come out. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, my PhD was focused on CMB science, not particularly in cosmology, but in the galactic science. When we observed with radio telescope the CMB, most of the emission that we see comes from our own galaxy. It's diffused galactic emission. So it's stuff that people would be trying to get rid of if exactly. they wanted to Cos- actually observe yeah. the background. Cosmologists but. tries to treat this as a contamination signal, but galactic scientists treat it as the signal that they want to study. So yeah, my PhD was focused on that, in studying these foregrounds in both polarization and total intensity. Okay, so the polarization... Just for a really quick example, what is the polarization of okay, so, mean? Uh, electromagnetic radiation, say light, radio waves, and infrared emission, has this property of polarization, which is only telling us the direction in which the electromagnetic wave is oscillating. If you have a lot of photons, a lot of electromagnetic waves, and they are oscillating in an other direction, say all of them are oscillating vertically, we will say that that wave is linearly polarized. So, in general, say the emission from the sun will be a superposition of waves polarized in many, many directions. So, when you observe it, it will look like it's unpolarized because all the directions are equally populated. But some astrophysical processes have some preferred directions. So, you measure by using a polarimeter, you can understand something about the geometry of the emission. So, that's what it is. And in CMB science, it's very important because the polarization of the CMB have additional cosmological information that cannot be recovered by only measuring the total intensity. So that's why it's interesting. But it's a hard signal to measure, as I guess we've been learning from recent results on the CMB. The CMB is the small fraction that is actually polarized. It can be as small as 1%. It depends on the angular sky that we're observing. But because the galactic emission is so bright, measuring the the polarization of the CMB is a very tough thing to do because first you need to sort of understand what the emission from the galaxy is doing and then subtract that and in polarization what is left is very little so that's why only now we have telescopes with large sensitivity to measure this small signal and what have you found out about our galaxy from these polarization measurements okay so i was studying the large scale polarization of the sky trying to see structures that cover a large area in the sky using wmap data which was a satellite that was observing the cosmic background and it stopped observing at 2010 and it gives for the first time images of how the polarized sky looks at frequencies of around 30 gigahertz, which are high frequencies in radio astronomy for this type of science. And the sort of striking result is that the sky is full of filaments and loops and spurs that are very large, more than 100 degrees, so they cover large fractions of the sky. If you could see them with your eyes, you will see that going from one side of the sky to the other, like covering the entire sky. And in the non-polarized sky, in the normal radio sky that we, we know from before from old radio surveys, the most emission comes from the galactic plane, and at high latitudes there are a few bright features. But when you look in polarization, you see the galactic plane, but then at high latitude, the only thing you see is, is filaments. The filaments have been known since the 50s, 60s, when the first radio surveys were carried out in the entire sky. But it's just now that we have this data and we can see that in polarization they are so strikingly bright and it's the only important thing that we see in the sky. 
Yeah, I think from images that people might have seen of radio maps of the sky, there's one in particular really huge kind of loop that you see, which I think is called the North Polar Spur. Yeah, the North Polar Spur. But you found many of these then, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So the North Polar Spur is the oldest spur and it's described in a paper of 1956. So that one is sort of well known. But yeah, so still in polarization now, we, we can number a, a lot of these features. And, and the interesting thing is that most of them seem to have like a circular shape, like pieces of arc of a circle have this geometry so that we believe that that is giving us clue about what is the origin of these things i was going to say yeah do we have any idea where they've yeah, come from that, or, or what they're made of or how old they are so in astronomy we know the physics of how the gas and the medium is, is emitting the radiation and we can by measuring the spectrum of the radiation the spectrum is just the ratio of how bright a feature is in between two different frequencies you can know which type of radiation is and in this case we know that the radiation it comes from a process that is called synchrotron emission where you have electrons traveling at almost the speed of light, spiraling around magnetic field lines. So these have been known for a long time ago, because people made observations at different frequencies. So we know that this is synchrotron radiation that has to do with the magnetic field. And following that, there have been a number of different theories, hypotheses, to what is the origin of these loops. Some people claim that they are the shell of a supernova explosion that is expanding, and we just see a, an arc, circular arc, because we're we are seeing the border of, of the shell. In the when we look through the shell, we don't see much, just because the column density, the amount of gas that is along the line of sight, is very small. But you go closer to the border, you have more gas, so it's more visible. That's why it's only a shell-like structure, and not a disk, what we see in the sky. So another people have these things are connected with activity in the galactic center. In the supermassive black hole that is at the center of the Milky Way, there is some sort of AGN activity that... So they, just to explain to people then, the black hole would be consuming material or, or material would be circulating around it and that would give rise to the magnetic... Yeah, material that had fell to the black hole at some point in history, then it was ejected vertically, perpendicular to the electric plane at very large distances and they will be the source of these structures. But if you think about these two explanations, the supernovae hypothesis of the black hole are completely different. If this is a supernova shell, it has to be very close, very nearby to the sun, because we see these things crossing the entire sky. So supernova remnants has to be very close to be such a large thing in the sky. But if it's something related with the galactic center, which is very far away, 8 kiloparsec, that, that would mean that this is just huge, and it's something with galactic scale of sizes, so... So it's not possible then to say exactly how far away these things are very that's, easily. That's the main issue. The, the determining the distances to these filaments is very difficult because they are only bright and visible in synchrotron emission and there is not clear correlations with any non-cloud of, of gas or something that we know the distance. So I think that's the main limitation actually. And that's why theories have so different physics and different scales in sizes and energy are still there and competing because we don't know yet the distance. That's the main issue. If we knew the distance, then everything would be much easier. So I guess in with supernovas, we could say we would kind of understand what happens when a star explodes in a supernova. But if it was an active phase for our Milky Way, what would that have meant for the galaxy when that was happening, say it was a few million years ago? Would that have but, had a profound effect on our galaxy? Yeah, that's a good point. Even probably, on life on it? Yeah, we observe many, many galaxies are active galaxies, and they have this activity jet emissions. And we see that those galaxies at some point behave differently, that the galaxies don't, that don't have that emission. The star forming rates are different. and So I don't know if it would have had 
any effect on life on Earth if it was something that happened recently at the center of the galaxy because, anyways, it's very far away. Maybe not as extreme as some as a nearby the supernova, yeah, or, yeah, or as yeah. a nearby supernova. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So I think that there, probably there, there are good arguments to investigate. It. Like, okay, if we, if we think that these things are coming from the galactic center, which other evidence? might be related with an episode of uh, mm-hmm. aging activity. That's, I'm not so sure that, that this is something feasible, actually, but still, I mean, the theories are there, like, people presenting these ideas. So mm-hmm. I don't think it's something so well understood. Yeah, it sounds like quite a mystery. But maybe as a, a last thing, I might just ask about a connection with the cosmic microwave background, because it has been suggested, not in your paper, but elsewhere, that these loops could give rise to some polarised emission that people doing the BICEP2 experiment could have mistaken for the signal from gravitational waves in the early universe. Yeah, I think that detecting the gravitational waves is a very tough thing. And yeah, the BICEP result relies on a well-known level of foreground emission in the patches that they observe. The, and we don't know for sure what is the amount of emission that our own galaxy is, is radiating in those fields. They rely the result in some modeling and assumptions, but not based on real data. What we really need to do is to know what the dust grains are doing in polarization of those frequencies. And the dust grain will, will emit polarized emission in a similar way to synchrotron emission. It's connected also with the magnetic field. The orientation of the grains will be older if there is a, a magnetic field around. So if some of these loops that we see in synchrotron radiation are going through the same patch by set telescope observed, we know that there will be some magnetic field there. And if there is some dust particles, there will be some degree of emission from the dust that will contaminate the area for the CMB. But till the moment there is no such a big map of polarized emission, we don't know. But that is going to change very soon, because Planck Saturday is doing exactly that, making a dust map in both total intensity and polarization of the entire sky. So I think that, that will settle, or at least we will know if the advisory result will be accepted after we see those maps. It's going to be by the end of this year. Well, that's really um, interesting. It sounds like your results will help us to maybe at some stage understand what's going on in our galaxy a bit better and also help people who are trying to scrub the galaxy out of their yeah, maps to, yeah. to get rid of things a little bit better and yeah. see what's behind it. The signal that all cosmologists are trying to find in this polarized CMB, what people try to measure is called the power spectrum, which is how the radiation varies as a function of angular sizes in the sky. So this power spectrum is like two little mountains, one at large angular scales and one small angular scales. So large angular scales means that we need to know what the sky looks like over the entire sky. And small angular scales means that we can make observations in smaller fields. But to be really sure that the signal that we're looking at is inflation, we ideally would like to see both. So that's why it's important to know what the large scale structure of the sky is. That's why we need to take these filaments and all this information about the galactic magnetic field into consideration. I think that's why this is useful, because it's showing that there is large coherent structure that crosses the entire sky, and they will have to be taken into account when subtracting all the contamination for the CMB. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. Okay. Thanks for that, Mark. Now Indy interviews Professor Sabir Sakar about galactic foregrounds and their impact on the BICEP2 experiment. I'm with Professor Subir Sarkar of Oxford University. You've just given a talk at Manchester University about the BICEP2 discovery and the possible detection of polarised B-modes in the cosmic microwave background. We covered this result in the April Jodcast News, but just to give our, our listeners a reminder, could you give us a quick overview of the detection? Uh, yes, certainly. I read your previous article, which was quite detailed. So you said in there that uh, BICEP is this experiment at the South Pole, 
and uh, it is there because it's one of the driest places on earth and a good place to observe the cosmic microwave background the radiation is not absorbed by water vapor as it would otherwise be and bicep has been observing a patch of the sky which is close to the galactic south pole in other words almost at 90 degrees to the plane of the milky way in order to be as free as possible of uh, emission from the galaxy foreground emission and in this patch they have been measuring the polarization of the cosmic microwave background and have detected sort of a curl or b mode as you said in the uh, polarization field which would be indicative of uh, primordial gravitational waves and this is how they have interpreted the result as a signature of uh, inflation in the early universe and this is why uh, everyone's pretty excited about it yeah exactly so actually i think not many people are familiar with inflation itself could you tell us why scientists are suddenly excited about this particular detection and and what it what it would mean to have a confirmation of inflation okay i'll try and say that as succinctly as possible but we are really now talking about a you know over 30 year old history of ideas so basically uh, we have as you know a standard model of uh, the evolution of the universe starting with some initial singular event which we don't know much about but we can uh, trace the successive stages of the inflation of the universe's expansion pretty well through for example nucleosynthesis of the elements through the decoupling of the microwave radiation when the universe turns transparent through to the formation of galaxies and the universe as we see it today and all that works very well but the problem is that uh, when we try and understand this in a simple mathematical framework as the standard big bang model is it turns out that it is not consistent with what we know about the manner in which light propagates uh, in the universe in other words if the universe is only one second old light could have only propagated one light second if it is 10 billion years old light could have only propagated 10 billion light years and so on and it turns out that the way we have constructed the cosmological model when we look at the microwave background we are seeing on say diametrically opposite points on the sky regions of uh, space which could not have been connected by light since the big bang there has not been time and therefore it is a mystery as to how they happen to have the same temperature today to you know very high precision and to understand this it was postulated in the 80s that uh, perhaps the universe has not been always slowing down in its expansion as uh, would have been expected from the very beginning when something set off the expansion it should have been slowing down because the gravity of matter in the universe should have been acting to reduce the rate of expansion and it was speculated that perhaps at some very early time the universe became dominated by a very strange kind of energy density which is called vacuum energy of a fundamental field in physics a scalar field and that this vacuum energy could have caused the rate of expansion to actually speed up and the universe would have then blown up exponentially fast so naturally this model was called inflation in parallel with phenomenon that people try to avoid on the on the stock market <laughs> right but uh, in fact for 
the universe, uh, inflation turns out to be a neat way of solving this so-called horizon problem. Other similar problems that have been discussed in the context of the standard Big Bang model of cosmology. Subsequently, it turned out also to be a very powerful idea for explaining why the small fluctuations that we see in the microwave background and which we know gave rise to the large-scale structure of the universe as we see it today, inflation provides a very natural mechanism to generate these. And that is why it has been a very powerful idea and has been studied in great detail by observers and theories alike. However, inflation has always been based on this idea of vacuum energy driving the expansion of the universe. And vacuum energy is really the most mysterious thing that is there in physics. I think I'm not exaggerating if I say it is really one of the biggest problems in theoretical physics to understand how vacuum energy couples to gravity. Because the standard model of particle physics, which has been so successful in the laboratory, has no gravity in it. It only describes the gauge forces of electromagnetism and the weak interactions and the Mm -hmm. strong interactions. And the only way that we can link gravity to the standard model is by using Einstein's theory of general relativity. And in that theory, all forms of energy density gravitate, including the zero-point fluctuations in quantum fields. And this is uh, grossly at variance with what we observe. And this was a problem that was recognized going all the way back to the pioneers of quantum field theory, people like Pauli and so on, knew that there was this big problem. But uh, nonetheless, we have been using this idea of a vacuum energy of a scalar field dominating the expansion of the universe broadly as a paradigm for understanding how these fluctuations in the matter density could have been generated as quantum fluctuations. So through that long answer, I hope I have kind of given an idea that we are in very troublesome territory here. We have come to believe in a model that actually has no fundamental basis in particle physics, but has proved to be a very useful construct for confronting observations in cosmology. But now a group claims to have made a measurement of gravitational waves which would actually be a direct probe of this vacuum energy. And that is why the bicep 2 observation is so important. So sorry about the wrong reply, but you have to say that in order to make it clear why this is so important. No, absolutely. I mean, it, it needs to be put in its context uh, before before we can sort of grasp why everyone has been uh, so excited about it. So as much as there have been plaudits, there have also been criticisms towards the result. And obviously, when any sort of new groundbreaking result comes in, scientists are the first people to be extremely cautious about the whole thing and to say, well, this is what we found, but we may be wrong. So could you maybe outline a few of the the criticisms made towards the, the BICEP team and, and, and what, what caveats have been made with respect to this result and why it wouldn't be prudent to instantly um, acclaim it as a groundbreaking discovery? Well, the BICEP team, of course, have uh, scrutinized their results very carefully. And before publication, they have done all the tests and checks that they could think of. I think that uh, the community is uh, pretty much convinced that in terms of pure detection of a signal, they have done as good a job as can be done. They have shown that through various uh, cross-checks and uh, uh, so-called jackknife tests, which is a technical term, they have shown that the data is internally consistent. 
that their calibration has been pretty good, sufficiently good that they can in fact claim to have detected a signal as small as the sea. They have also had to demonstrate that this B-mode signal which they have seen is actually the result of gravitational waves from inflation and not, for example, due to a, a different kind of signal which can be distorted through gravitational lensing in order to mimic a gravitational wave signal. And this, in fact, is a concern that many have expressed. And they have done their best to assuage those fears by showing that, in fact, they see an excess over the expectation from lensing of the so-called E-mode signal, which is larger, but which can look like a B-mode signal. And uh, they may well, in fact, have convinced their critics that uh, the B-mode signal that they see is genuine. However, a B-mode signal doesn't just have to come from gravitational waves from inflation. It can, in fact, arise from much more uh, close by. It can come, in fact, from the foreground emission from the galaxy through which we are looking in order to see the cosmic microwave background. And in that respect, uh, the Bicep people, as I mentioned earlier, have chosen to look at the best possible patch of the sky, according to our current uh, understanding of the situation, a patch where there is meant to be almost no foreground emission, a patch which is very far away of the Milky Way plane, and where all the known foreground emissions are at a minimum. However, this may not have been sufficient because we are really talking about a very challenging measurement. This is pushing the boundaries of anything that has been done before. And so, as you can imagine, the stakes are now higher. We need to go back and re-examine those models of those foregrounds, which were, after all, developed for a certain purpose, to ask if they're still fit for purpose at the level of precision that we are now talking about. And some of us have concerns in that regard. I see, yeah. So effectively, the BICEP team were, look were looking at the patch of the sky that is deemed to be empty, but the last time we really checked to see if anything was there was maybe sort of 20 years ago. And so what new observations have been done or will be done to, to really verify that there is no excess foreground uh, BMO emission? Well, there are various sorts of observations. So first of all, what they're measuring is a polarized signal. And in order to estimate the foreground for that, they currently have to extrapolate measurements of polarized skies at very different frequencies to the one that they're observing at. That is because no such observations have been made earlier. But the good news is that the Planck satellite has made those observations at several frequencies very recently and very shortly, within a few months, is expected to release those results. And that certainly will give us the opportunity to cross-correlate the BICEP data with the Planck data to see if what they're seeing is in fact in the galaxy or outside it. But meanwhile, what some of us have been doing is looking at objects that are known to exist in much lower frequency radio maps of the sky at synchrotron uh, frequencies. In other words, at low frequencies where radiation by cosmic ray electrons in magnetic fields dominates. And it has been known for a long time, since the 70s, that there are huge structures in the sky, the so-called radio loops, which are supernova remnants very close to us, which are at high latitudes because they are you know, a few hundred parsecs big and only a few hundred parsecs away, so that we are effectively surrounded by them. And these structures can therefore provide us foregrounds even very far away from the galactic plane, where nominally you would think there are none. 
although these structures have been known, they have not been taken to seriously in the context of the bicep two surge because they are observing at a very high frequency where synchrotron emission should be negligible. However, it can happen that the same regions of the sky that give us this enhanced synchrotron emission, such as the radio loops, can also be repositories of dust, and dust can emit at the high frequencies that BICEP is observing at. And therefore, we were looking in the maps of the sky, which are meant to be of the cosmic microwave background at high frequencies, to see if there were any traces of these loop structures that are known at low frequencies. And to our surprise, we found that there are. And these structures are there uh, in these so-called cleaned microwave background maps at a level which is about uh, 60 times higher than that of the BICEP2 detection. So these structures only have to be polarized at the level of a few percent in order to be able to mimic the level of the signal that has been seen. And that means that uh, we need to re-examine the issue much more carefully in the light of the forthcoming data. Uh, so that's that. That really puts a quite a damper on the uh, on the actual result. Um, do, I mean, now this is veering more into the theory, into the realm of hypothesis. But I mean, do do you think that it would still be possible, despite the presence of these loops, to 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 validate the bicep result, especially with the Planck data, for example? Yes, in principle, the Planck data ought to be able to demonstrate whether the bicep two map is galactic foreground or not. If it turns out to be galactic foreground, that is the end of the story. Although, of course, it is very interesting for galactic astrophysics. It is not going to be relevant for possible detection of gravitational waves from inflation. But the point is that uh, it is too early to say any more about that because that is not the only thing you can do. One can also cross-correlate the bicep to map with for example, uh, the magnetic field structure in that part of the sky, which can be traced through Faraday rotation, for example. You might think of other ways to trace the dust emission, and people are already thinking about that. So there are various possible traces of these foregrounds. The point being that BICEP2 have only thought about the foregrounds that are known today. There might be other foregrounds that have not been discussed earlier, simply because they have not been particularly relevant. In a sense, it is the BICEP2 detection that has kind of focused attention on the importance of understanding these foregrounds. So in a strange way, it is the pursuit of a cosmological holy grail that has in fact uh, shown how important it is to do the galactic astrophysics first mm -hmm. in more detail than it has been done so far. And I find that uh, synergy, if you like, very interesting. Yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, it's actually personally, I'm, my PhD is relevant to galactic foregrounds as well. So it's, it's quite interesting, uh, an interesting result there. And, um, I mean, hypothetically, say this is uh, a question more for the, uh, cosmological side of things, but say, say the, the gravitational waves were confirmed. What would the, the next immediate step be in terms of, um, the theoretical and observational communities? Well, if it was confirmed that the B-mode signal is not correlated with the foreground, then I think the community would have every right to expect, first of all, an independent detection of the same signal. The foreground is simply one reason why it might be completely spurious. But mm -hmm. even if it is not spurious, it would need to be confirmed by another experiment. You will recall that the reason why the recent discovery of the Higgs boson at CERN was so quickly accepted is because there were two 
very independent experiments that gave results of similar significance at the same time. When you are talking about a really fundamental step through in our understanding of the world, we have the right to demand that sort of confirmation before taking anything on board. Sure. But if it turns out that uh, another experiment also confirms the bicep to result that it is not only just B mode, but B mode from primordial gravitational waves, then the stakes get higher still because then one would need to understand whether such a signal could actually be generated by inflation. And already there are some funny features in the observed or the claimed signal which are really at variance with the models of inflation that would have predicted the signal. For example, gravitational wave, the spectrum of the signal should always be so-called blue. But in fact, it turns out that in order to be consistent with other observations, for example, from Planck, the spectrum has in some part of spatial scales has got to, in fact, tilt the other way, it is red. And that is theoretically not possible. Of course, one can also ask whether the theoretical models that uh, from the basis of which I just made that statement are too naive, can they be rejected in order to give the answer? And this kind of, uh, you know, dialectic will obviously carry on, but it is hard to forecast exactly how it will go. But certainly, above all, what we do in physics needs experimental verification. If there is experimental proof, which is of such a order that it cannot be disputed, then I'm sure we'll have to accept it, however difficult it might be theoretically, and find ways to understand it in terms of our present constructs. Not least among them would be to understand how vacuum energy could have gravitated and driven the expansion of the universe at the grand unification scale and then disappeared to a miraculous level in order to yield the universe that we see today. But these are all challenges and also opportunities. Thank you very much, Sabir, for your, for your time and for your answers. Thank you. Thanks for that, Indy. And now it's time for the part of the show where we talk about everything we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. I thought I might kick things off by talking about a pretty cool uh, thing that's been set up in space recently. Well, it's it's in space already, but there's a new laser link with the International Space Station. And what that could actually do is um, improve the speed of orbital communications, moving it from sort of the dial-up era to basically broadband. So there's this so-called OPALS instrument, uh, Optical Payload for Lasercom Science, it's attached to the space to the outside of the space station, and uh, in a bunch of tests, the NASA's scientists and engineers have shown that it's it's a lot quicker uh, than traditional radio transmissions, and actually will probably revolutionise the way that you know mission control, everyone on Earth will communicate with things up in space. So it's been an idea for a long time, you know, transmission of information using light, using lasers instead of uh, radio waves. I mean, basically they're the same thing. They're still electromagnetic waves that you can modulate and, and transmit information through in the same way, but it's not been easy to implement uh, for a long time because there's a lot of obstacles involved in this. But uh, Opal's uh, has managed to work to some degree, so it was delivered to the ISS in April by um, a SpaceX Dragon uh, rocket, and it, it's then completed about four months of its prime mission. So one of the one of the big obstacles is uh, the impact of atmospheric turbulence on data loss. And so Opal's actually uses four lasers, and they average out the data that's received by each of these four lasers, and that's managed to transmit um, reasonable messages for now. The next step, obviously, is to use adaptive optics to actually dynamically compensate for the turbulence. They're going to use them on, on, on the next generation of large uh, optical telescopes as well. 
So essentially, you've got some, a ground station that sends up these four lasers, uh, and you know they aim for the space station. And for you know clear, dark background conditions, it's actually quite easy for the Opal's instrument to pick up the ground beacon and receive the message. It's a bit more difficult in daylight because you've got a lot of background noise. I mean, essentially, what's going on is that all the light coming from elsewhere is going to interfere with the information that you're trying to transmit using the lasers. But they have managed to transmit some messages and they're trying to in- increase that using uh, software to sort of uh, intelligently filter out all the background noise. So some of the transmissions they've done so far includes doing a night pass over Table Mountain in June that lasted 148 seconds. They managed to transmit a video with the message, um, Hello World. So they beamed that from the space station every three and a half seconds. Uh, it would have taken 10 minutes to transmit using just radio communications, but they managed, it took them just three and a half seconds to beam it down uh, in the laser. Also in June, they transmitted the entirety of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, so the book by Lewis Carroll. And in July, to commemorate the 1969 moon landings, they beamed a high-def video of the landing, so the whole thing, in just under seven seconds. If you were to use existing radio infrastructure, that would that took 12 hours to uplink that to the ISS. And the whole thing, the data was completely reconstructed after they received it, so... It's essentially working uh, very well, and they have a very low uh, error rate in terms of the bits that are transmitted. So, we mentioned that I mentioned that one of the difficulties is doing it during daytime because there's so much background light. Uh, the other problem is adverse weather conditions. Obviously, if there's a big cloud in the way or just a lot of atmospheric turbulence, it's going to be difficult. So that that's the main challenge that's facing them now. And as any technology, you know, if NASA are using it and testing it and making it work, then you can expect some sort of commercial application somewhere down the line. Um, and, you know, we could start potentially one day seeing internet via satellite that would just go a lot, lot faster than, than current uh, technology. And you can also imagine having high-def laser links to things like a rover on Mars, and then you'd be essentially able to stream video almost real-time from, from a Mars rover. So it's a really cool, uh, it's just kind of an update on, on the progress of this really cool technology that's going on uh, on the ISS. Well, mine's just a bit of fun, really. Um, they're auctioning off the naming rights to the largest unnamed crater on Mars. It's being auctioned on eBay, and at the time of recording, it's going for $2,020 with eight, eight hours left. So um, if you're bidding on that, uh, good luck to you. Yeah, we, this this probably be over by the time we yeah, put the exactly. judge cast. <laughs> so who's 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 if you who's, have bid on that then? Who's, who, who's selling it off? The money's going to support space exploration and education grants. Oh, that's nice. It's actually going to something yeah. useful <laughs> instead of someone who's just staked a claim. Yeah. <laughs> on on the moon, I think you can you can still buy an acre of the moon if you like, but it's just I think it managed to get done because no one had actually ever staked a claim on the moon. So this one guy in America said, you know what, this is going to be mine. Yeah. <laughs> and now you can buy an acre of the moon should um, some sort of apocalyptic scenario happen. At least you've got a bit of the moon. Yeah, um, but that would literally just be like a worthless piece of paper. It's kind of yeah. Like, I own some part of the moon, let me access my part of the moon. And mm. It's good that naming an unnamed crater on Mars and, yeah, raising money for space exploration. That's what we like to hear, I guess. You can name um, smaller craters as well. Um, I think they go from five to $5,000. So uh, some of them may be affordable yeah. <laughs> for a Christmas present <laughs> name for someone. Your, yeah, that's excellent. <laughs> name your very own crater. And then using laser link technology in the future, you'll be able to see it. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, cool. Josie? Okay, cool. Uh, my odd and end this week is... 
basically a lot of interns at um, the Johnson Space Center in Houston at NASA have created a parody video of All About That Base, but they've changed it to All About That Space. <laughs> uh, so there's a whole very nice video. They've changed all the lyrics to make it very space and NASA applicable. And the main idea of it was to celebrate the test flight of Orion being successful. Um, so this was sort of its first uncrewed test flight. Uh, it landed safely back in the Pacific Ocean, and they're hoping it'll be back in Florida soon for sort of data analysis. The main goal of Orion is to kind of try and get people to Mars. So NASA's next um, crew command module, so it's their next kind of, the latest thing they've designed to actually put humans uh, into space, and so they're going to skip the moon and go straight straight to Mars as the plan, I guess. And so that's going to be the kind of the command module for all of these human-led um, uh, expeditions in, in the future. So, yeah, it's great news that their tests went off successfully because the, the launch itself was postponed several times due to bad weather conditions, I think. And, um, and it's good that they finally got a window to launch it. And so, so yeah, this is a great video. Um, we'll have the link in the, in the show notes and definitely go check it out. And now we have someone who knows all about that space and maybe that base as well. Uh, here's Dr. Ian McDonald with this month's Ask an Astronomer. Our first question this month comes from John Brooks. He says, The 1970 Reader Digest Atlas of the Universe states that the Milky Way contains 100,000 million stars. Today, with our advanced technology, the figures range vastly from 100 billion to 400 billion stars. So which is it? Surely now, 44 years later, we would have a much more accurate figure than to just still say between 100 and 400 billion stars. Surprisingly, we can't really do any better these days. The problem is that, well, we've got a very good idea of how many big, bright stars there are in the galaxy. We have very little idea of how many small, faint ones there are. You can consider the question of what it takes to become a star. And generally, we consider that to be about 13 times the mass of Jupiter. That's the smallest object that can really generate its own heat from nuclear fusion. But that heat is really very feeble. The smallest stars can only be about room temperature. Some are even colder. And they're millions of times fainter than the sun. They can't be seen in visible light, even by the world's largest telescopes. If the Sun was a cool brown dwarf, it would shine with the same intrinsic brightness as the planet Venus, except that it would appear black because it would only emit in the infrared. And these properties, this coolness, this faintness, makes it really difficult to detect them. It's only with the careful study of infrared data from satellites that astronomers have managed to identify the candidate objects recently. After that, they need further follow-up observation to see how they move in order to estimate how far away they are. That takes a lot of expensive telescope time, which is why we only know a handful of these really small objects. They're so faint that what we think are the 5th, 6th and 7th closest stars to the Sun have only been discovered in the last two years. If we want to know how many stars there are in the galaxy, from this handful of objects we've somehow got to extrapolate how many of these small stars there are in the entire Milky Way. There's many billions no doubt, but it's hard to say exactly how many with any kind of reasonable accuracy. So many star counts ignore these very faint stars and they only look at things that are about 80 times the size of Jupiter, or about the twelfth of the size of the Sun. Objects this big are large enough that we can really think of them as stars, and they behave a little bit more like the stars that we'd expect to see. They're also a little easier to detect. Even then, it's kind of difficult to know how many there are. There's a lot of uncertainty in things like the structure of the galaxy, the relative contributions from young stars and old stars, and so forth. So we're doing pretty well to gauge things within a factor of four at the moment. However, we should have a handle on this in the near future. The Gaia satellite was launched late last year. It should measure the distances to a lot of the bright stars on this side of the galaxy, 
and that'll give us our real first empirical view of what the galaxy looks like. It also works using visible light, so it won't pick up the coolest, faintest, smallest stars still, but it will improve our accuracy on the distance of the largest stars immeasurably. So you never know, maybe in a few years' time when you're reading your astronomy textbook, we'll have a much more accurate figure for you, but not right now. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question and a really interesting answer. Astronomers don't know everything. <laughs> we try to. <laughs> we do try. The next question comes from André Joubert, who asks, What percentage of inner rocky planets will survive a hot Jupiter on its inward journey? Does this not reduce the estimates of habitable planets in the Milky Way? For anyone not in the know, a hot Jupiter is a planet like Jupiter that orbits very close to its parent star. These can be pretty crazy planets. They orbit so close that a year might only last a few days, one day or even less in some cases. They can reach temperatures of over 1,000 degrees Celsius. Like our moon, they tidally locked their star, so they keep one superheated face pointing towards the star, and one cooler face facing the darkness of space. That leads to some pretty crazy weather, and supersonic winds try to equalise the temperature difference between the two faces. The planets can even cause tides, like we get on Earth, but rolling around on the surface of the host star. So they're pretty crazy places. But how they've got there has been a bit of mystery until recently. Maybe they formed there, maybe they started out like our planet Jupiter, and moved a lot closer to the star. We can guess the answer by measuring the angle between the equator of the star and the orbit of the planet going around the star using what's known as the Rosta-McLaughlin effect. Now, since the star and the planets formed out of the same rotating gas cloud, we normally expect the star's rotation and the planet's orbit to be in the same direction, like the Sun's and the Earth's is. We've found that quite a lot of these hot Jupiters orbit the star in an inclined orbit, and sometimes elongated. Some of them even orbit backwards. The easiest way to get the planet to orbit a star like this is to have some kind of gravitational dust-up, with another planet further out in the planetary system. The orbits of the two planets interact, one's kicked out of the system, and one's knocked towards the star. We've recently discovered some of these free-floating planets hurtling around between the stars. There's probably as many free-floating planets out there as there are actual stars, so there could be even 400 billion of them in our own galaxy. Now obviously this doesn't bode well if you're the planet that's ejected, and puny Earth-mass planets don't stand much of a chance in the face of migrating Jupiter-mass planet. So seeing these planets may well be a signal of a stellar system in distress that's not going to be able to support life. That's not necessarily the case. By measuring slight wobbles in these planets' orbits, we can test to see if there are other planets in the system. The Kepler satellites use these transit timing variations to find systems with not only a hot Jupiter, but with other gas giants orbiting close to the star. So it's not all doom and gloom. Planets can still exist in these systems. But what effect would this have on life? Well, the fraction of stars with hot Jupiters is only somewhere between 8% and 11%, and that gives you some idea of the differences involved. If we don't know how many stars there are in the galaxy to anything like that accuracy, the additional uncertainty factored in by an extra roughly 10% of hot Jupiters is comparatively small. So at the moment we only have a rough estimate of the number of habitable planets in the galaxy anyway. Our current estimates are, on average, there's about one habitable planet per star. But even then it depends on what you class as a habitable planet. If you class anything that could support life as we know it at some point in its existence, that definition can include Mars and sometimes Venus too. Although they didn't support life, they didn't develop life, there may have been the potential for life to have been there at some point. So for the few hundred billion stars in our galaxy, there are probably a few hundred billion habitable planets, but all the numbers are still highly uncertain at this point. Thanks, that's an interesting answer and much to discover there. Finally, we've got two related questions here. The first one's from Jürgen Nilsson, who asks, What is wrong with this argument? First of all, a lot of the universe is moving away from us at speeds higher than sea, 
When an object moves at sea, its mass is infinite. We are therefore surrounded by a black hole. And Peter Ellinger asks, at the moment of the Big Bang, how come it went bang? Surely with everything in the universe being so close together, it would effectively be the biggest black hole ever and therefore having an impossibly high escape velocity. Surely this would have resulted in no bang whatsoever. Well, we've avoided the universal black hole because the early universe expanded faster than light. Yeah, you heard that right. Even though Einstein's theories of relativity predict that nothing can travel faster than the speed of light, the universe did actually expand faster than the speed of light. So does that mean Einstein was wrong? Well, not so fast. Let's rewind a bit. Why can't something travel faster than the speed of light? Well, it takes energy to move something, and energy is always conserved in the universe, so that energy has to go somewhere. Einstein showed that that energy gets absorbed by the thing that's being moved, adding to its mass, and making the object heavier. The more energy you put in, the heavier the object gets. Eventually, the mass becomes infinitely large and requires an infinite amount of energy to move. That point occurs when the object reaches the speed of light, and that's why nothing can go faster than the speed of light. Or can it? Our current theories of the Big Bang predict that space is expanding. The further away something is, the faster it's expanding away from us. Not only that, but some distance from us, everything is moving faster than the speed of light. How can this be? Well, speed is relative. That's Einstein's theory of relativity in a nutshell. You can't accelerate something from a standing stop to going faster than the speed of light. But that says nothing about the space around you. We can think of this concept like a fast car. Let's say I've got a car sitting on a test track here in Manchester. It's got a top speed of 270 miles an hour. That's quite a fast car, but no matter how hard I try, I can't accelerate it faster than that. However, the Earth's turning under me at 1,000 miles an hour, so even when it's not moving, it's already moving at 1,000 miles an hour. And it's orbiting the Sun at 18,500 miles an hour. And the Sun is orbiting the galaxy at 136,000 miles an hour. The galaxy is moving relative to the cosmic microwave background at 825,000 miles an hour. 825,000 miles an hour is a pretty fast car, but we don't normally consider these speeds because we're used to measuring things compared to where they are on the Earth's surface. Now, similarly, if we measure the motion of something in the universe, we expect some frame of reference, and that's effectively the space the object's sitting on. This concept of space as a medium is quite important because the Big Bang wasn't like a conventional explosion. Material didn't fly away from a central point because of some applied pressure of an explosion. Space itself came into being, and it's been continuously created ever since. Now, that space has no mass, it's a vacuum, but it's still got physical properties, like an inertial frame. So as space expands, things are carried along with it. The space has no mass, and it's only moving with respect to the space next to it. So as space expands, anything in it gets carried along by that expansion, a bit like something stuck to the surface of an expanding balloon. Now, in the same way as our racing car can't move faster than its own top speed, Nothing can move faster than the speed of light, but that's the speed of light relative to the space around it. It doesn't prevent the space in which it's sitting doing its own thing. So who knows, maybe one of these days we'll be able to harness this concept and create warp drive, and then we can start living our dreams and have some hammy captain get involved with some fistfighting and improbable romantic situations with some highly dubious alien species. That would be living the dream indeed. Well, thanks a lot for answering all those questions, uh, Ian. You're quite welcome. And uh, if you have any of your own questions, uh, feel free to leave them the address on the Jodcast website. Thanks for that, Ian. And now on to the feedback. Uh, we do have one very nice postcard that we got a few got in a couple of days ago. So it's one of those jokey pun postcards that says, well, peace on earth, but spelt peas like the vegetable, and it's literally written out with a bunch of peas on some earth. So noble sentiment there and a very good joke. 
So it reads, uh, Many thanks to all the Jodcast crew, old and new, for years of ecstatic joy and wonder. Wow. No matter how cloudy the sky, you lift me up and out to the ends of a vibrant universe. Keep exploring, I'll keep listening. RR, which stands for Ryan Reynolds. Well, we, we reckon it's not the Hollywood celebrity, but um, if it was, that was cool. If not, thank you anyway, <laughs> Ryan. That's an absolutely lovely postcard. Uh, we're glad we bring you so much ecstatic joy and wonder. It definitely brings us uh, joy and wonder to see people's reactions to the Jodcast. So keep the post coming in. We love post. It's got a really cool Christmas stamp as well. So he, uh, Ryan lives in Lincoln City, Oregon, uh, in the US. So that's really cool because his postcard is across the Atlantic. So thanks again, Ryan, uh, and Merry Christmas to you. On Facebook, Katie Culvert follows up on all the uh, the live Jodcast talk as well with a post on our December on our December issue, and she says I was at the live Jodcast too. Uh, was it really five years? And she thinks her t-shirt's looking tired and she needs a new one and says we definitely should do it again. Uh, we may or may not do it again, depending on the stress levels of various people involved. <laughs> um, I mean, all, all the feedback from people on the Jodcast side of things is, oh my God, it was so stressful, <laughs> but everyone seemed to enjoy it, so maybe. Also, the T-shirts may or may not be in the works, but we have to think, we have to talk about that with other um, Jodcast people. And thanks for all the likes on Facebook, retweets and follow Fridays. Uh, and if you want to get in touch, you can do so by the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com forward slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the website. All that's left is to say thanks to Subir Sarkar and Matthias Vidal for the interviews. The editors were Christina Smith, Sally Cooper, Mark Perver, and Charlie Walker, and the producer was Indy Leclerc. Until next time... Jordan! I believe in princesses! I believe in princesses! Oh, all right. There, I'm back to life. Yay. Just get over the whole princess thing. Yay! Yay. Now for you, Captain Mark. Your Pulsar group has dominated Forever and Everland for far too long, and you've kidnapped so many lost children to give up years of their lives to look at spin-down rates. I mean, who wants to listen to something going... What's that? It sounds like... Like my old nemesis. The colloquium clock. What, the one that kept ticking while everyone watched you freeze up on stage while you were giving your talk? Yes, that one. I can't take this. The faces staring expectantly at me. All the ticking. And the talking. And the rotating. And the pulsing. I can't take it. No! No! What an eccentric performance. Yay, we won! But how can someone afraid of clocks work in the Pulsar group? Never mind that. We can save all the lost graduates and search for my dark matter. Hooray! We're free from the horrors of Tempo 2 timing Pulsar software. Yay! We're free! You could stay with us, Indy darling. No thanks. We'd better go home. Mum and Dad will be worried sick about us. And so Indy, Josephine and Monique were transported home by Peter and Tinkermeg to find their parents waiting for them. Oh, children, we've been so terribly upset. We telephoned the observatory, but you weren't there. Your father and I have been looking for you everywhere. Oh, Mother, we were in Forever and Everland, and we saved the lost graduates from the clutches of the evil Pulsar group. I see. Well, we were just about to send out an escaping expert to find you, but it appears that your services are no longer needed. Oh, 
Okay, I'll be on my way then. Who was that? But how does he keep putting the same joke in every year? Enough of that! You three are grounded for the rest of the academic year! Oh, Oh, Mum!